grab your Bible, we are going to be in 2 Timothy. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the uh, seats somewhere there around you underneath. Uh, I know you just sat down, but I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's Word this morning together. Maybe you did that way back when, when you were a kid. Anybody do that? Go to church, and they'd have you stand up to read God's Word. Stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I remember those words, Sunday in and Sunday out. Let me tell you why we're doing it this morning. Um, We don't always do this, but uh, just let it be a reminder this morning as we move forward into the next season of this church. Just let it be a reminder to us as we jump back into uh, looking at God's word uh, that it is his word that is our foundation. You know, we talked about our foundation last week. It's his word that builds that foundation. It, It defines what that foundation is for us. We didn't just come up with our foundation. Uh, everything we do has to be tied back to his word. It is what anchors us to truth. And so we're going to do it this morning. Respect for God's word, um, really to the point of dependence, is, uh, is not an all too common thing in our churches these days, unfortunately. So we're going we're gonna to stand as I read Second Timothy. Let me give you the first few verses here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. According to the promise of life in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers, both night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. For I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelled in your grandmother, Lois, in your mother, Eunice. And I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. And for this reason, I also suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I've believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. So retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Let's pray. Father God, as we stand for your word, we do so just as a... uh, as a small act to say that we depend on your word and maybe Lord, we don't. All right, let's, let's all just be honest before you this morning, God, maybe we don't to the degree that we should depend on your word to the point of obedience. Maybe we have uh, put your word somewhere on a shelf, so to speak in our hearts and in our minds, and we haven't given it its due It hasn't been our anchor. 
And Lord, we, we cry out knowing that it need be our anchor this morning, that you would bring it back to its rightful place in our hearts and minds. Because it is your word. It's your revelation to us. So Lord, um, give us a strong affection and affinity and a desire to not just hear your word, but to absorb it and allow it to do its work in us of sharpening and cutting and dissecting and causing us and creating us to be in the image of Christ, the firstborn among many brethren. And so we stand, we stand this morning at the reading of your word, if only to remind ourselves that we are dependent upon your revealed glory to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Second Timothy, why Second Timothy? Why do we go to the next series and choose Second Timothy? It's one of my favorite it's one of my favorite books in, uh, in all scripture, and I seem to say that a lot. I find myself. But it really is one of my favorite sections. Let me tell you a few reasons why. One, it is probably the most personal section of Paul's writing in all the scripture we have recorded. It's straight from his heart. You can't get much better than that. To have a guy like the Apostle Paul uh, just speaking directly from his heart. It's a, it's a very personal letter from the Apostle Paul. That's one of the reasons I love it. Number two, uh, when I was first called into ministry, the men I admired, uh, some of you have heard me say this, the men I admired looked a whole lot different than the, the men I admire now. Uh, let me explain. When I, when I first got called into the ministry, I thought, okay, if I'm going to be one of these preacher guys, uh, I looked around on the landscape of Christianity and the guys who caught my eye were the popular guys. Those are the guys I looked up to. The guys who everybody else seemed to be drawn to. And in and, and my flesh, trying to work out my calling, I, I want to be like that. It was the popular guy I looked up to. Later on, God kind of weaned me off of that a little bit. Uh, it wasn't just the popular guy that I was drawn to. It was, in fact, the talented guy. So whether he was popular or not became less important, but, but I recognized just real talent and ability, giftedness in, in the man. And I was drawn to not now the popular guy, but the guy who was actually really talented, whether he was popular or not. That lasted for a little while, and God took me in, into another perspective. It's not, the, it's not the popular guy or the talented guy. It became, it became the knowledgeable guy, the guy who knew his Word. I mean, the guy who could just quote it back and forth. So I thought I'd made some progress from the from the popular guy to the talented guy to at least the wise, the wisdom there. That's what I wanted to model my life and ministry and my personal Christianity after. Uh, but there came a time when I realized that none of those really were the men that I needed to be looking to. It wasn't the popular guy. It wasn't the talented guy. It wasn't even the guy with the knowledge. Uh, it's become, the older I get, and it becomes more and more true because we have a tendency to slip back into those other perspectives. It becomes more and more true, I think, as I get older, and maybe you'll, you'll agree with this, that it is, it's, it's increasingly the faithful old guy 
that I look to and I say, that's right. That's where I want to be. You know what I mean? It's the guy who, who in the long run, through hard days, good days, bad days, over and over and over and over, he proves to be faithful, 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 all the way into the end, even if the end is a bitter end. He never gives up. He never drops a ball. He may never be elevated to popularity. He may not be the wisest guy out there or the most talented guy out there. But what come, becomes more and more impressive to me, uh, the more grace God gives me to see it, it's the guy who's faithful through and through. That's why I love Second Timothy, because it, it comes to the end of Paul's life and you see that this guy's faithful to the end. Let me tell you another reason why I love this letter. Uh, I've long taken an interest, and this has something to do with the second reason I gave you, but I've long taken an interest in the final words of men and women. I mean, what are you going to say when it comes down to your last moment? If you could formulate what you're going to say, if you, if you have the opportunity and you have the ability to think it out, and you've got that 15 minutes to nail it down before you take your last breath, and you actually do that, you take the time to do that, I mean, what would you say? If your family's in the room, if your children are in the room, if your wife's at your bedside, what would you say? And, and those, those moments I'm just drawn to because they've got to be the best of that person. Right? Mark Twain said it this way, a distinguished man should be as particular about his last words as he is about his last breath. And he wrote a whole essay on the last words of great men and how many men, when it comes to that last moment, don't give a thoughtful uh, uh, perspective on it in their hearts and they go into it and they say something foolish. <laughs> and he says they go off into life having ended it ridiculously. And he quotes many of those famous great men and women who uh, said stupid stuff at the end of their life. They gave it no thought. I love Paul in 2 Timothy because it seems that he, he's got his whole heart in it. And he's just exploding to, to, to say these last important things. Uh, let me give you another reason that I love this letter. At the moment, it touches on the very heart of the thing that I believe our church needs. In the season we're in, okay, if you were here last week and you, and you understand kind of the direction that we're going, I think it's very appropriate for this. Uh, let, me, let me tell you why. Second Timothy is not a letter to the churches in a region as are many of Paul's letters. You, know, you get the letter to the Galatians. That's not to an individual person or even to an individual church. It's to a number of churches who were in that area of the world. Uh, the letter to the Philippians, it's to a number of house churches, if you will, who met in that area. And they circulated those letters around. Second Timothy is not a letter to a group of churches. It's a letter to a man. It's a letter to a friend. It's a letter to his son in the faith, if you will. It's a different thing altogether. <clears throat> it's a letter to a friend and a fellow minister. But make no mistake, it's for the benefit of the entire church. Specifically, it is for the benefit of what Paul's going to say are those others to come. And so while Paul is writing this very personal letter to Timothy, and he's reminding him of some things that have been entrusted to him, it's not just because of the things that have been entrusted to Timothy, it's because of the things that have been entrusted to Timothy are to go beyond Timothy into the next generation. They're not just to stop here, guys. 
It's not something that Paul desires, that it's just a letter from here to there, and it doesn't go out there. Does that make sense? That's one of the reasons I feel it's particularly important for us. Although it is a personal letter, it's, make no mistake, for the benefit of the church to come. If you look at chapter 2, verse 10, you get a flavor of this. For this reason, and I think this may be the best theme verse if you want to pluck one out for the entire letter. For this reason, Paul says, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. That's not just Timothy. So that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Paul had a mindset that this had to go from generation to generation. Here's his point. He wasn't going to waste his life on himself. The Apostle Paul, if you look at his life... He did not spend it on himself. The Apostle Paul spent his life on others, not just Timothy, but those who would come through Timothy. Which you might find surprising as we uh, move through the letter in the coming weeks is that uh, it isn't an encouraging letter to Timothy uh, in regards to the coming life of comfort that he should expect. In fact, just the opposite. It's a call by the apostle for others to follow in his seemingly sad footsteps. You might expect to find commendations to young Timothy. Instead, the letter is made up of mainly commands. Retain and trust, guard, hold to, study, preach, etc., etc. Commands, one after another, not commendations. You get no words of consolation from the end of Paul's pen here. Instead, you find marching orders to soldiers. Interesting. Paul doesn't seem to really be concerned even about basic theology in the letter. He's already done that. Instead, catch this, it's a call to act on what he's already taught. It's a call to act upon what has already been taught. It's Timothy... You've heard this from me. Let's go. Let's go. Last week I explained that I believe we've done well in our first two foundational areas. I gave you the little diagram up there that we are following the Lord, feeding the sheep. And I I honed in, I targeted in on that third category of our foundation, that we have a relationship to this world, that we have yet to solidify that area of our foundation so that God can begin building upon this foundational church. Uh, that is where our focus is. That is where our aim is. It's that third category. It's, it's our taking what we've learned from here and not just sitting on it and going out there and doing something with it. That's, that's Second Timothy. From this pulpit, we will continue to focus on the basics. We will continue to teach the word. We'll continue to do those Christianity 101 things and 201 things and 301 things. But let me say it this way. We're in the time where there's a whole group of you here in our church that have to get out of uh, English 101. We need you to graduate past freshman year. And we have to take up the responsibility of that which is the remaining part of our foundation yet to be solidified. And we're going to always continue to train that freshman class that comes in. From here and in other places, we're going to take that next freshman class that comes in and we're going to work with them and we're going to move them on. And so we're going to continue to do that. But if we don't advance someone, if we don't advance someone into the world, well, then we're, we're missing. We're missing what I think 
is Paul's emphasis here for Timothy. I paraphrased at the end of last week the words of uh, Chuck Swindoll uh, to this end in his latest book called The Church Awakening. I want to read them to you this week because I didn't do a, a just job. Listen to what he says about, about the church not just preaching the word from here and doing its part here, that part of the foundation, but the body taking up what has been taught and going out there. Listen to what he said. He says, I live to realize while a strong pulpit is essential, a contagious church also requires a context of other distinctives. There must be more than preaching, more than one gift at work, more than one conviction of one person. A contagious church has a number of individuals living out clear biblical principles with the result that people pause in the midst of their busy lives. They realize this is a place where they're coming and participating. He goes on to say this. As we're thinking about the awakening of the church, we need to define what it is that makes it contagious. How should a church grow biblically? What environment causes a community to take notice? It isn't just the building. We got that. The sound system. We got that. Or the music. We got that. But pastor, it's not even the preaching. I repeat, it's the context that makes a church contagious. And the context, he says, is the people. And it's more than curiosity at the numbers of people. It's their passion. It's their spirit-directed enthusiasm. It's the obvious work of a God engaging the lives of believers in a meaningful connection, a genuine compassion, and an almost electric excitement about reaching out into the community and investing themselves wholeheartedly into places of ministry. It's Timothy. Let's go. Let's go. Paul's going to challenge Timothy to take all that he's been entrusted and pass it along to the next guy. That which you've been entrusted with, give to others. Find worthy men and women to pass it to. Sounds simple enough, doesn't it? Find someone in the dark who needs the light you've been given and give it to them. Sounds easy. Chapter 2, verse 2. The things that you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see, it's this generational thing. It gets passed along like a baton, so to speak. It's handed to you and you hand it to another and another and another. It is one person being faithful to the next. That's Second Timothy. It's the passing of the baton. And if any of you uh, think as we get into here to Second Timothy that you might remain on the sideline of the track and stay out of the race because you're not called, quote, ministers. Let me just make this clear. Ministers have a calling. Their calling is to be examples to the flock so that the flock starts to look more like the minister who is hopefully looking more like Christ. So you see, uh, wherever you are in that paradigm, you're still growing in grace to be more like Christ. Does that make sense? So these words pass to you. They're not just for Timothy. They're for all those that Timothy was charged and entrusted to pass them to. And that goes right down the line to where we sit today. 
this morning is designed of sorts just to give you a little bit of an intro. But not just that. It's also intended to be really a sober challenge at the outset of looking at this letter. When we jump in next week, I think this morning you need to have this challenge. The question on my heart as we go into 2 Timothy and how it's related to us is, uh, are you ready to run? I wonder, you know, if you think about this picture of passing the baton, do you even have your hand out? Ready. I wonder if you're even on the track. I wonder if you even realize that there's a baton to be handed to you. Or that there is someone around the bend of the track that is waiting for you to pass the baton to them. In fact, let's be clear. If you are in Christ, whether you know it or not, you already have the baton. But some of us have left the track. And at time to time we find ourselves wandering around in the parking lot or we've taken the baton back home and we've focused in on our life. And the race is going over here and we're lagging behind, carrying around this thing that is designed to be passed on to another. But it's just something we're carrying around. We forgot that we're in a race, that someone has entrusted us and trusted us to entrust it to another. Do do you know that there is a baton? Do you know that there is a race? Are you on are you on the track? I want to end by reminding you of something that uh, might encourage you to grab that baton and run as hard as you can. Listen, the men and women who have run the race before you have not always had an easy go of it. Okay, let me say that again. The men and women who have run this race before you, who have carried this baton. Generation and generation before you have not always had an easy go of it. Let's take Paul as our example, and this will help set up how he's writing this letter. Paul did not pen his final words from his home. He didn't pen his final words from the city colonnade. He wasn't at seaside and he wasn't at mountainside. Paul was literally in a hole. He was in a hole. You may have known that Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. But let me paint a real picture for you of what that looked like. In previous times, Paul was imprisoned and he wrote and he ministered. But it looked a whole lot more like house arrest. People could come and go, bring him things. He could minister It was house arrest. Not this imprisonment. Not this time. Let me read to you what one scholar wrote on Paul's imprisonment here at the end of his life. The judicial judicial process in the Roman Empire would begin with charges being brought against someone by private individuals. Public prosecutors were not a part of the process. Thus, the accusers or accuser would be required to bring bring the accused before what was called the bema. It's a seat or a throne which a magistrate would sit on to hear a case. It's the bench, so to speak. The bema would move with the governor so justice could be administered wherever the uh, the provincial governor happened to be within the province. Once 
The accused was incarcerated. The incarceration itself was generally not a part of the punishment. Now think about this. Being incarcerated was not your punishment. Rather, a prison was a holding place for the, number one, defiant, whose release would be granted on the condition of some concession of obedience to the magistrate. They would beat you in prison long enough until you said, I won't do this again. And so they'd hold you there until you said, I, re- I recant. And I'll not speak in that name again. And then they let you go. Or two, incarceration for, was for those awaiting trial. Thirdly, those awaiting execution remained in, incarcerated. It is obvious that imprisonment was oftentimes brutal, the article says. The anticipation of harsh treatment was intended to instill a sense of fear among the populace, not just the guy they were punishing, but so that everybody might realize you don't want to break the law. Beatings and torture might take place before and during imprisonment. Conditions were anything but comfortable. Disease, festering wounds, especially in cases of bondage or chains, which we know Paul was in chains. Lack of sleep, lack of healthy diet made for a miserable situation. Prisons could be crowded, filled with darkness, devoid of personal necessities, and mentally distressing. It was not uncommon for prisoners to resort to suicide. During Paul's second Roman imprisonment, Paul writes to Timothy in anticipation of a second trial and a subsequent execution. 2 Timothy 4 alludes to this. He didn't expect to make it out of this hole. Paul tells Timothy of those who have turned away in shame from him in imprisonment because imprisonment was loathsome. It was the worst of the worst. Now this prison that they suspect that Paul was in, um, you didn't walk down steps to. They dropped you through a hole into a cave. And I suspect that they had to throw down a line that you would tie to yourself to raise you out of this hole. No sanitation. You get in the picture here? No light. No chairs. No bed. Paul is in a hole. And with his pen... He reaches up from this rancid hole and extends to you and I the blood-stained baton. And he screams through 2 Timothy, not just to Timothy, but to all those who would come through further ministries. Keep running. Don't drop the baton. great relay runs on there is someone before you who needs it but there is also someone who ran behind you that has entrusted this baton to you and they haven't always run an easy course in fact Paul does not call the race he's in a track he calls it a course picture an obstacle course barbed wire to crawl under Bars to climb over. Pits of mud to wade through. You get in the picture? It's an obstacle course. It's harsh terrain. 
but the matan must go on. In football, at the beginning of the season, you, uh, you don't practice with your whole uniform on. It's required by law uh, in most places, I believe, at I think all levels, even professional, that for a couple weeks, typically, you practice without your pads on. You can wear your helmet, but you can have no contact. You can't put your shoulder pads on. You can't put the pants on. You can't hit. You've got to practice for a couple of weeks before you can get to that point. Now, during that two-week time frame, you probably got 100 guys that are on the team. Football season's starting. Everybody wants to be on the team. But at that two-week mark, here's what would happen. Uh, what my dad would call a separation of the men from the boys was coming because pads would go on. And on that first day, collisions happen. And those who wanted to be there were separated from those who thought they wanted to be there. And it went from 100 guys to like 60 guys. Because you go out there and you get, you get your bell rung. And some guys would say, that's enough for me. Paul, he hung in till the end. Don't you think his last words are worth listening to as he screams out from this hole, lifting this baton to generations ahead and saying, make sure you don't drop this thing. You know what I thought of this morning? I don't want to go to heaven. I don't want to be in glory one day and face Paul who ended his life uh, by tradition in imprisonment and death, and not a pleasant death, I don't want to face that guy and be complaining about my sufferings in this world uh, being that my neighbor wasn't real nice to me when I brought up the name of Jesus, that I was a little embarrassed and my feelings were hurt when I went and I talked to that guy or this guy, or I wasn't really sure how to approach it, and the situation, it was really uncomfortable. (laughs) And stand there in front of Paul, Uh, much less, much less Christ Jesus who suffered, who Paul took the baton from and said, I won't drop it. I won't drop it. Let's pray. Father God, there is uh, a little weight to Scripture. The responsibility is, it is, a, uh, it is a weighty thing to those who look back, to those who are courageous enough to look back to, to the men and women who have gone before, who have run faithfully the course, have finished the race, who've endured the hurdles, the pain. The falling. Father God, it takes, uh, it takes courage for us to stop for a moment in our blessed day.
and set our excuses to the side. To set our so-called sufferings to the side and look back at men and women who, who simply gave it all. They gave it all. And at the bitter end, at the bitter end, they cry out for a faithful man, for a faithful woman. To take the baton yet another mile. Lord, what I know, what I know as the shepherd of this flock is that the mass of this family that calls Cornerstone home desires to run the race faithfully, come what may. Lord, I sense that this church maybe is at the starting line. And we've been waiting for the gun to go off to run our leg of the race. It's time to run. It's time to take the baton from the faithful men and women before us and do the hard work Maybe the embarrassing work. Maybe the not so comfortable work. Maybe the not so easy work of going to our neighbor, going to maybe our father, going to maybe our mother, our good friend who knows us better than anyone else, and declaring the grace of Jesus. Might it be, might it be our theme verse as it is Paul's, that we would endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Father, it's been gifted to us. Might we be faithful. Might we be faithful with that which has been entrusted to us until you come back might we be faithful in Christ's name Amen Amen uh, we're going to sing one more song why don't you go ahead and stand and uh, ask God where you are in this and let me encourage you um, you come back in the next couple of weeks, Paul's going to give us, he's going to give us vital information for running the course, okay? Don't miss it. I had you stand to remind us, as we read the word, that we need God's word. You have an opportunity here over the next several weeks to get at least 2 Timothy under your belt so that you'll be able to walk away and say, I've got a better handle on this letter, if none other. And then you stick around a little longer and we'll teach you another piece. And you'll get a handle on that. And some of you have got a handle on a whole bunch. And you're going to have to come to Second Timothy and hear the words from Paul to faithful Timothy that go through him right to our heart and says, run. And we're going to have to be willing to run. So you keep coming back. You keep coming back. There may be, there may be those of you in the room who, who say, you know what? Um, I need to. I need to. I need to just say 
to the body of Christ, to this body, I need to say that um, I'm going to run. There were times when, when I got saved in the 11th grade that I would stand in the church and I would sit right back uh, in the back left corner and uh, we had pews and I would hold on to that pew at this point right here and I would stand there and I would hold on to this and I would literally feel like uh, as long as I held on to the front of the pew in front of me, um, I would not, I would not respond in the way the Spirit was calling me to respond. And here's what it was. It was simply, I have not, I have not a full clarity on why I need to walk down there and tell this guy who's standing down there that I'm in. But if I don't let go of this, I'll make it. I'll make it through the song, and then he'll pray, and then we'll go out, and I'll be done. <laughs> and I'll have, I'll, have, I'll have sufficiently escaped one more Sunday. And maybe that's you. And I'll just tell you, uh, I, don't always, I didn't always know why I needed to let go and walk down there and maybe just kneel down and pray and tell God, uh, whatever the challenge is, I'm in. But we've, we've lost that, maybe, in our churches. We've lost that. There's something about walking down here when everybody else might be wondering, what's wrong with that guy? <laughs> that he has to go up there and pray that you're going to say, you know what? I don't care. I don't care. God needs to see me before I leave this place, before this hour is done. God needs to see me move. Because if I don't move here, I'm not going to move. I'm going to go right back to the same place out there. You following with me? Maybe you need to move this morning. And let me just say, on behalf of the rest of the body, nobody's going to assume that you're in some gross sin. Nobody's going to assume that you murdered anybody. Nobody's going to assume that you're cheating on your spouse. We're going to pray with you. And we're going to say, praise God, people are moving. Because if we came here and we're not willing to move off of where we were, guys, you've heard me say it before, you'd be better off fishing this morning. We're not here to waste this hour. We're here to be changed. We're here to be sharpened by God's word. So as we sing, you sing and you cry out. And you allow God to move you in your heart. If you don't need to sing and you just need to stand there and stare at the floor and let him move you right where you are, that's fine. If you need to come up here just so you, you get out of your seat, then you do it. You do it.